Welcome to Nancy's Bookshelf, a weekly program of conversations with North State and national writers from North State Public Radio. Now here's your host, Nancy Wickman. Dairyville resident Pam Warfield not only loves to cook, but also loves good cookware. And the best she has ever found is cast iron. Her husband Eddie gave her the nickname Cast Iron Pam. She often thought she'd like to write a cookbook, but it wasn't until a friend of hers asked her for several recipes that Pam Wakefield put together a collection of recipes plus practical information she thought would be helpful. She calls her book Cast Iron Pam, Healthful Home Cooking. Pam Warfield, welcome. Thank you. Now, I mentioned that you live in Dairyville, but uh, so what do you do there? Of course, I have my cookbooks and some cast ironware that I have out for if anybody wants to buy. Well, um, you primarily, I mean, the title of your book, Cast Iron Pam, mm-hmm. uh, is a clue that your book is going to be about cast iron. But your book is also about your personal story of how you changed the way you used to eat. Oh, yes. <laughs> So what provoked you to make changes? Well, I found out that I was border diabetic. And that scared the P. Waddens out of me, to be quite honest. (laughs) It just really did, because I don't like taking medicine, and I certainly hate shots. So there was no way I was going to do that. So I just determined that I was going to find a way to reduce my numbers and not have to go on any drugs. And what I did was I... um, changed, well, I went for like a month without any um, sweetener or sugars at all, not honey or anything. And that didn't change my numbers. So I decided, well, there's got to be something I could do because you got to make things palatable. And so I found out through um, some different research and stuff that if I went off of refined sugar, okay, so like the white sugar, If you go off the refined sugar, your body can um, use the natural sugars like honey and molasses and even um, what they call evaporated cane juice, organic sugar, they call it that, um, that that your body uses it differently because it can actually get nutrients out of it. And so when you use it, you can um, use the same amounts like you normally would use with any sugar, but your bo- at least my body, doesn't crave as much sugar. I, I never could satisfy my sugar cravings before. I mean, I would eat half a cheesecake without even thinking about it, you know, real easily. Now I get through one piece, you know. So um, that was a huge change for me. And I dropped tons of weight. I was 275. And with that and also going off um, salt, I lost well over 50 pounds. I mean, it's like 65 pounds. It just came literally pouring off of me. And then I was able to keep my numbers. My diabetic, um, whatever, the glucose number they call it, I guess, was 98, and it went down to 86. So that was wonderful, and I haven't had to go on anything yet. My guest is Pam Wakefield. Her husband nicknamed her Cast Iron Pam, Pam Warfield, because her husband nicknamed her Cast Iron Pam. That's the name of her cookbook. But it's more than a cookbook. Um, You call it healthful home cooking. Mm -hmm. And so I want to go back to the fact that you said there was a difference in refined sugar for you Mm -hmm. when you were making these changes. Mm -hmm. And uh, so people are thinking, oh, okay, so I'll leave out white sugar, but brown sugar, I'll eat brown sugar. You're shaking your head. (laughs) (laughs) Brown sugar is just white sugar with the molasses added back to it. So while it gives you the flavor, it doesn't change the nutrient content to what the raw sugar is. If you want truly... um, raw brown sugar, then you have to get um, like rapadura sugar, or sometimes they call it sucanat. Um, and that literally looks like dirt when it's <laughs> It does. It looks like it looks like little granules of dirt, but it's got the most flavorful um, taste to it. It's unbelievable. And you can actually make molasses out of it by just adding a little liquid to it, a little water, 
Well, I don't use refined sugar. I use honey in mm-hmm. my sweetening. It doesn't take much. But I wondered this this kind of sugar that you mentioned. I thought, okay, where if you tell people about this, and they might say, oh, I think I'll try that. So I tried to find it here in Chico, for example, and uh, the nice lady who answered the phone when I phoned New Earth Market, for example, um, it was something new to her, this whole concept. So I think I'm going to have to go by and check it in person, and I read labels. If something, I pick it up and it says corn syrup, it goes right back on the shelf. I do not <laughs> consume corn syrup. So um, so you mentioned how, if you were, say, to go to a grocery store, how would you ask for, or, or where, what's your source of this sugar? Tell people again what this call this is called. Okay, so the the brand that I usually use is by Rapidura. That's the brand. But the sugar is called, um, um, I'm sorry, the brand is Rapunzel, but the sugar is Rapidura. And um, that I have found at, um, what's that, Health Food Storms Reading, um, Golden Carrot or something like that. It's where, what's that store? Orchard Nutrition. <laughs> Orchard Nutrition, that's the name of it. It was over by um, Osh before, so I used to get the two names confused. Um, so you go in there, but it went up way expensive. And so um, it's really hard to find now. But you can get it through like a Mountain People's Co-op or Azura, uh, Azura um, Co-op, these um, places that they'll come and deliver to you or you have to pick it up someplace. And um, it's expensive, but it doesn't take a lot. And you actually get nutrients out of it. You actually get your vitamin Bs and um, some, oh, I can't remember all the different vitamins that are in it. But you actually get nutrition out of it instead of it draining it out of you. So, My guest is Pam Warfield, and she lives in Derryville up near Red Bluff. And she has written a book, Cast Iron Pam because she advocates using cast iron. Now, people hear the success you had losing weight, so mm-hmm. that gives you some um, somewhat, if I want to call you an expert in that area, because your personal experience bears out. So people say, okay, I'm going to listen to her because she was successful. It might work for me. But um, another reason that you, if I want to call you an expert, mm-hmm. is that you have done a lot of cooking <laughs> and uh, you have a rather large family. Mm-hmm. So uh, tell us uh, about your cooking experience. Okay, so I have nine children, and it was like cooking for an army every day. <laughs> I mean, it was. You think about it. We had three meals a day. We all sat down together, and then we'd have break earlier in the day, and that would just be like, you know, tortilla chips and salsa, something simple. But as far as cooking went, it took me hours in the day to cook for everybody. And, of course, being the mom, I want the best nutrition for my kids and also to keep it relatively inexpensive because it costs a fortune to feed 11 people. So I would cook things like, oh, I'd make, you know, tacos or, you know, chicken pot pie and all different kinds of things like that. And... It took hours in the day to cook, but it was worth it because, you know, everybody loved it and it was healthier for them by not um, using processed stuff, you know, and by not using all the processed stuff, there's a lot of hidden sugar and fat in things that you buy and corn syrup's a huge one. So I don't use any of that. In place of corn syrup, I use... um, uh, rice syrup and it um is made it's fermented so and then it's not refined you know and and it's not um processed in the same way like corn syrup is corn syrup's just really bad so i use in my own kitchen olive oil and butter now you do something interesting with butter and that is you can make salad dressing with butter I use it in place of salad dressing. So I just melt the butter, and I love blue cheese on my salads. So I just make my salad, throw my blue cheese on there, and just melt a couple ounces of 
butter so it's enough to go around on it and mix it in. And, oh, man, it's the bomb. It's so good. <laughs> well, now, you might clarify, too, it's not the whole butter that you buy from the grocery store and bring it home. But you, what do you do before you make it more liquid, if I want to put it that way? No, it's the butter from the store. Okay, because I thought maybe you skimmed it off and made ghee. Oh, I have done that, yes. But um, that was because of a, well, for an experimental thing too, but um, we had some health issues going on, and so that was recommended. Um, But normally I just use regular butter from the store for that. But um, I'm careful. I like the grass-fed butter. You know, the grass-fed cow's better just because it's more nutritious. I want to, and perhaps I should have done this at the very beginning, Pam, I want to clarify that you do not claim to be any kind of health professional. You are not a doctor. You're not a nurse. So you speak from just your own experience. You're not trying to tell somebody else what to do. So I want to make sure listeners understand that you're not claiming to be that kind of expert. Absolutely. The only kind of doctor I call me is a doctor mom, you know, (laughs) (laughs) just because you're taking care of your kids and family. But no. No, 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 no. I would not ever claim to be any type of professional in the health field at all. But what has worked for you are these changes in your diet. Mm -hmm. You don't have to take medication for diabetes, for example. You've lost a lot of weight. So your own personal experience is what you base your advice, if I want to call it that. Right, right. Um, Yeah, I I, uh, still do the same things. I don't eat the corn syrups and I don't eat the refined sugars and I um, stick to my natural sugars and sweeteners and I do use salt now like I didn't used to use before. I used to just um, salt like the pot of soup but uh, and then not put anything in my bowl because I was trying to cut that out because of water weight and stuff but then I went to the extreme and I it was too extreme, and I was getting massive, I'm talking chronic, leg cramps where I couldn't walk. And it was everything I could do to even stand up. And so um, my son, we were camping just this last summer, and I had a massive leg cramp. And I swore that if I didn't get to the bottom of this and make it better, I was not ever going to go camping again. <laughs> oh, it, it, it was really bad because it ruins it for everybody. Nobody wants to see you hobbling around and crying and screaming, <laughs> especially in the middle of the night and stuff, you know. Forgive me for laughing, Pam, no, but no, I'm I know it's this very thing. comical, but at the time it's really not comical. And, um, and so he gave me a, a fistful of sugar, uh, salt to down and he says drink this water down it and drink it right away and it within seconds started working so now I just salt my food to taste but I don't use regular table salt I use the good sea salts the Celtic salt the Himalayan salt you know a variety of different salt my guest is Derryville resident Pam Warfield and she has written a book she calls cast iron Pam healthful home cooking We'll be back to continue our conversation after a short break. You're listening to Nancy's Bookshelf on North State Public Radio. I'm Nancy Wigman. I'm Nancy Wigman, and you're listening to Nancy's Bookshelf on North State Public Radio. I'm back with my guest, cookbook author and cast-iron cooker, Pam Warfield. 
Well, uh, I want to. I still want to get to the cast iron because oh, that yeah. uh, I, I, you have some wonderful things to say about that. But as far as utensils go, I mentioned that in the past I had every kind of device you could imagine for your kitchen. And then oh, I moved and said, I'm getting rid of all this stuff because the only thing it is really, really essential for the way I eat, I need to be able to peel and chop vegetables and fruits. So I thought the only thing really essential in the kitchen is a knife and a sharp knife. So do you have advice as far as knives? I do. And I have a wide variety of different types of knives. And... Um, I always try to find um, high-carbon steel knives, even just a plain high-carbon steel knife. So when you use them, they get rusty. I even have knives that are high-carbon steel made from, like, saw blades and things like that, and they are the bomb because it's nice and thin, and you can slice thin. It's nice and straight. But high-carbon stainless steel is what you find in the stores and online and stuff, and those are really good. If you buy just a stainless steel knife, it doesn't cut well, you know, and um, it's it's almost impossible to keep sharp. You can't keep a stainless steel sharp, but if it has a high carbon in there, it makes a world of difference, and you can sharpen it really sharp. And then I usually don't have to have it sharpened very often because I put it on a steel whenever I go to slice things and stuff, and that takes the burrs off that keeps the knife sharp. My guest is Pam Warfield, and her book is called Cast Iron Pam, because her husband gave her that nickname, Cast Iron Pam, and it's Helpful Home Cooking. So your book is about cast iron. So why would we want to use cast iron instead of these coated utensils that are ubiquitous? Okay, so cast iron, it heats up evenly. It lasts a lifetime, several lifetimes. I have an antique, 10-quart antique Dutch oven that I use all the time. I have an antique chicken fryer that when I go to do things that require, you know, a, a deeper pan, I use that. And no cracks. They taste great. You don't ever have to go back and re-season them because they're so old. You just have to just wipe it out. Because that's the selling point of some of these other utensils. They're coated, so you don't have to use oil or butter in them. Yeah. And you and I both have said, yeah, we like butter. (laughs) (laughs) You bet. (laughs) Yeah. Well, the thing with the coated stuff is it's coating, which means it's over whatever the pan is made of. And so coatings can peel up chip off porcelain, the enameled stuff, can chip off into your um, food and you don't know it and you're consuming it. And the like Teflon coatings, things like that, same thing. It peels off and gets in your food and you know it's just not healthy for you. The chemicals they make it out of and things, it's just not healthy for you. And But the cast iron... You use that, and the only thing that comes up is, you know, a little bit of iron in your food. Because, like, if you fry an egg in a cast iron pan, it's going to get a little black edge. Um, but that's just iron, and it's not going to hurt you. It's only going to benefit you. So you have nothing to lose. Cast iron can cost a little more, but then again, it lasts for generations. As long as you don't, like, take a hot hot pan and set it on a really cold surface and stick it in the freezer, do something <laughs> stupid to make it crack. It lasts forever. If I inherit my grandmother's cast iron pan, it's already seasoned for me. But if I am inspired by what you're saying, Pam, I don't have cast iron. I'm going to go down to the store and buy me a cast iron pan. What do I do when I get it home? Okay, most of the cast iron you buy today is pre-seasoned. And I watch a lot of videos about cast iron to stay appraised of everything, you know. And um, they say the best thing to do is bring it home and scrub it good. Well, because there might be a film on there, you know, and then um, you're good to go to start. You know, you just want to get any, um, like, packing stuff off of it or whatever. And so then you're good to go. And sometimes they say that it's um, good to lightly season it. But you don't really have to go through the whole seasoning process. Just kind of get the pan warm and wipe some oil in there and just wipe it out until it's dry. 
you know, where you can't get up any more oil, and then start cooking. So it's really, that's, that is convenient. But there again, when you're looking for cast iron, get a good brand because not all are created equal. <laughs> There's a lot of um, cheap stuff made like in China or something that are just poorly made. And um, most of, even Lodge now, has kind of like a rough surface on the inside of their pans. And they say that's to grab, like, when you go to season it, because you will have to season it from time to time until it gets a nice buildup. Um, they say that it's to grab the seasoning better, and then eventually it'll smooth out. But I like the older stuff because that's just happened naturally, and I didn't have to do it. <laughs> Well, I know a lot of people that after they're cooking, they cook a meal, and they put the dishes, the pots and pans in the sink and soak them in water. Mm-hmm. Is that okay with a cast iron pan? No, not really. <laughs> Can't say I haven't ever done it, but I found out the hard way. <laughs> uh-huh. No, you're not really supposed to do that. You can put a little water in it, like if something's really, like you burnt something and it's really stuck for like a couple minutes just to with a little bit and on the stove to heat it up to kind of get it loosened. But you don't really want to put any water on your cast iron if you can at all help it. And not leave it soaking for hours. Oh, no. Don't leave it soaking at all, no. But what is best to do is to, like, clean it with salt and a rag or, you know, like the back of a, you know, the sponges, the blue sponges or greens. Yeah. Use that and scrub it on dry on the stove while it's warm. You don't want it hot, just warm, and then things come up real nice. So if somebody has some leftover, say, Morton salt in their cabinet, mm-hmm. that's the way you can use it. Exactly. And, and rather than eat it, right. you can use it to clean your cast yeah. iron pan. And for salt consuming, you would recommend, say, Himalayan salt or sea salt. Yeah, a good sea salt, yeah. Yeah. Well, um, I'll remind people that you are not claiming to be a health professional or a doctor, that this advice you're offering is based on your own experience and what has worked for you. Absolutely. So um, is there any other advice that you would offer people based on your experience? As far as cooking with cast iron? Cast iron or any of the things that you have uh, learned over the years. Yeah, I would say cook the best you can for your family. And for you, your your health will benefit, their health will benefit greatly by um, avoiding so many chemicals and sugars because there's a lot of hidden sugar and salt and fat in um, the processed foods out there. Do your best to stay away from that and to cook from scratch for your family and use the best cookware you can find. For me, that's cast iron. And... Um, You might have to put out a few more dollars to get a better brand, but it's well worth it. And like I say, it'll last a lifetime if you care for it properly. I'll remind people that the title of your book is Cast Iron Pam, Healthful Home Cooking. The author is Pam Warfield. Thank you so much, Pam. Thank you. My next guest has written a book about a little-known item that is probably unknown outside Alaska. Scott Nitzel lives in Chico, but loves to travel. He has explored 83 countries and lived in six. When COVID closed down travel, he decided to write a book. To quote his girlfriend, it's what happens when someone with ADD writes a book. His book is about an Usyk, and few people outside Alaska even know that an Usyk exists. Scott Nitzel, welcome. Thank you, Nancy. It's a pleasure to be with you this morning. Well, it's kind of interesting to write about an object that is so little known. So how, what were you doing before you became an, a traveler and an author? Uh, well, I've been traveling since I was 29 when I quit my first job to take my backpack and become one of those year railers or you know, traveling throughout Europe for several months. Uh, my career was a project manager building retail banks. Um, Many of you that have walked into a Chase Bank or a Bank of America bank, I probably had a footprint in in that branch as to the layout and what I wanted you to experience inside of that bank. Um, that went on for many, many years, none of which I enjoyed. It was all just to fund my travel. And I've 
always been curious what, what other people are doing out there um, in other parts of the world, and I had to go see it. So I've spent more time uh, on the road than here in the United States. Well, could I ask where you grew up? I grew up in Seattle. Great place to be. Um, still call it home, though I haven't lived there for many years. But like to go back. It's such a beautiful city. So I, I've spent in the States most of my life in Seattle or San Diego for quite a few years prior to moving here to Chico five years ago. So you like to travel and you get interested in this object that most of us have never heard of. And it's uh, on the cover of your book, as you might guess, the title is simply the Usyk. But there's this object on the cover that looks like a stick. <laughs> that, that doesn't look very unusual, Scott. Well, it is. Uh, shall I just explain what an usik is? Yes, please. An usik is a penis bone, specifically from the an ancient walrus, twelve thousand years ago, pre-ice age, and then after the ice age, the Inuits in today's Alaska would discover these usiks laying on the dirt or perhaps still attached to an old walrus uh, carcass, and they'd have to, um, you know, break it off. And they're, and they're generally about two to three feet in length, uh, quite colorful because they've absorbed minerals from, from organic minerals from, from the earth over the, all these years. And at first, the Inuits would use these as bludgeoning tools during a hunt. Um, specifically, the, they would be on a hunt, let's say, for a moose or a caribou, and seals would squeal and give them away. So uh, it sounds terrible, but they would use these usics like a baseball bat and club the seals to death so that they could continue their hunt. Um, later on, and, and of course, we're still talking um, long in, before the 1800s when the Christians and the Presbyterians arrived in Alaska, um, the Inuits would use these usics as in ceremonial pieces. They became ceremonial relics. Well, I'm just going to remind people that my guest is Scott Nitzel, and we're talking about an, uh, the title of his book that he has written, which few people have ever even heard the word usik. And you must have, because it's so little known here in the lower 48, you must have discovered this when you were in Alaska, this... Well, um, I first heard of an Usyk. My father had spent some time in Alaska and arrived home with one. And they're not supposed to leave Alaska. But this was a long time ago. I don't know if the laws have changed, but um, somehow he smuggled an Usyk out of Alaska. And I looked at it and thought, well, that's an interesting thing. Uh, didn't think much more about it for years. And then um, through my travels and experiencing what bone relics are and how important bone relics are to many different people in the world, Buddhists, uh, and uh, like the enamel from um, Buddha's teeth is a sacred bone relic in, in, in many Buddhist temples. Uh, Muhammad's, he had four of his teeth smashed out in a battle. Two of those teeth were found, and they're on display in Istanbul. And, of course, maybe more familiar to us here in the U.S., um, bone fragments from apostles are uh, often on, in storage or on display in many Catholic churches. Relics. Relics. So, so th this bone is very important to the Inuits in Alaska. I thought that was fair game, as equal <laughs> as the other religions find bone relics important. So when, when I wasn't able to travel three years ago, because of COVID shutting the world down. I wanted to write about something absolutely original. There are no other books about an Usyk. There is a brewery in Alaska called Usyk Brewery. There's an annual event called the Usyk Ski Race, a cross-country race in Alaska. But, and there is a poem, the Ode to an Usyk, <laughs> but no other books. So that gave me the, the green the excitement to write about something original, about um, something that certainly started in Alaska um, and was important to the Inuits. And then um, this, this, this specific Usyk that I write about is three feet in length. It's quite colorful. Um, 
and it has... Now, wait a second, Scott. Okay. You say that's quite colorful, but it looks kind of just solid beige, maybe a little red mark on it. So when you say colorful, do you mean because of the carvings on it? No, it's, it, this is sort of a... Well, I see it as a red tint, and there's some yellows in it. Yeah, yeah. they're a little different. Yeah. I'll yep. tell you, this is I, <laughs> a, a mystery to me, but if you buy a book on Amazon, it looks different than if you buy a book through Barnes & Noble. You got one or the other, because yours is different than yes, mine. My, my, <laughs> the bone on my cover looks a slightly different shade. Yeah, So that's why I was uh, surprised when you yeah. were saying it's reddish. Well, now, uh, speaking of buying your book, I know somebody who probably would like to buy this book as a gift for a family member. And I would like to bring uh, a third person into our conversation, somebody who is very talented and you never hear from him normally. But uh, Scott, I'd like you to meet Matt Fiddler. And Matt, what is your connection with this book? Well, I'm not sure if exactly if it is qualified to be called an Usyk or not. Um, but um, my grandmother had a collection of what was described to me as whale penis bones. And is, is that related? Well, in my <laughs> research, there's only two animals that have this balsium, which is a penis bone. And a whale, to my knowledge, is not one of them. It's the walrus, and then there's a, some little indigenous animal in South America. I don't recall what it is, but I, I can't say one way or the other, Matt. Okay, well, I'll have to have get. Have you the seen it? I, yes, well, my 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 mother now has this collection in um, in her, in her house, and I will have to uh, to ask her for more specifics on this. Um, and and Nancy and I, we can talk about it afterwards, and maybe we can give an update after the end of, <laughs> end of this interview I, I, in like the to program. From Matt, if he's seen it and felt one of his grandmother's, perhaps. Y yes, and, yes, I have, and it, it's, How long it's, are it's they? just white. Uh, they range from about. Uh, they're, they're they're small. They're 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 smallish for for a, for such a large animal. I'd say they're they're not three feet in length or maybe the longest one is 18 inches mm -hmm. or a foot maybe and I think some of them are, are even smaller than that I got it I'd have to ask her if she was my grandma if she's <laughs> sure that these are from uh if they're from whales or walruses because it sure sounds like an usik to me because maybe white. maybe they are from a walrus and it was just incorrect unfortunately my grandmother's uh passed away but my mom would have that information although maybe incorrectly passed to her as well <laughs> so i'm gonna do i'm gonna ask her and then do a little bit of internet sleuthing and maybe send you some pictures and maybe we can do an update that will air after this interview. Oh, that'd be great. That, that would be fun. So <laughs> great. Thank if, you. If you go on the Internet, and by the way, Usyk is spelled, because I get asked, Usyk, yes. O-O-S-I-K. Um, there's quite a market for them. They, they have to stay in Alaska, assumingly. They, I, I don't know if people ship them out or not. But there's quite a market, and they go for thousands of dollars. So get a hold of them, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> so right now it is technically illegal to take them out of Alaska, as you're saying. So I, after, after the book came out earlier this year, I was invited by Barnes & Noble in Fairbanks to come up and do an author book signing. And then I was invited by Barnes & Noble in Anchorage to do another author book signing. And while I was up there, uh, I was told, uh, they're, they're actually a, like a household name up there, uh, that it's illegal to take them out of Alaska. So... Matt's grandmother probably got them out before it became <laughs> yeah, yeah. But that's interesting. I find that she has a collection of them, Matt. She was an eccentric woman. Um, <laughs> but she collected she collected other things um, from she she was really interested in uh, art from other cultures. And so she had some African art and some South American art. She was raised in South America, and so she had a lot of South American art as well. Well, um, because I lived in Peru, I know that a lot of families have their own uh, collection of museum-worthy uh, gold and pottery and, and such things. So that's uh, fairly, I would say, typical even uh, of some places. Well, back to the Usyk. Um, Scott Nitzel, by the way, is my guest, and he has written a book 
the Usyk, and he says there are no other books about an Usyk. And I find that hard to believe. <laughs> I thought about that on the way in this morning. If there is a book, it's long before the Internet and anyone uploaded it on the Internet. So, um, But so people know. might like to Google that word, so I'm glad you spelled it for them, O-O-S-I-K, in case people uh, get curious and want to know more about it. Okay. During my conversation with Scott Nitzel, I mentioned that the Nancy's Bookshelf producer, Matt Fiddler, has a family member who owns a few Usics. At least, that's what he thinks they are. Matt said he would check with his mom to confirm the details. Matt, what did you find out? Are these Usics? Well, I think they are. I don't have any sort of proof that they are. Um, it turns out that my grandma was interested in kind of Alaskan lore and artifacts and that kind of thing. And so she bought them from uh, a store in Seattle where, where she lived. And so I asked, and, and she passed away you know, a couple decades ago, but my mom's had the collection and she always described them as whale penis bones. But when I asked her about it, so after this interview, you know, I, I, I of course called her up and, and asked her about it. And she said that she thought they were maybe multiple kinds of animals and not just a, a whale, but maybe a walrus in there, too. And so she sent me the pictures, and um, I, I confirmed with Scott that she, he said they looked like Usyks. And one of them was about 12 inches long, and the other was maybe 4 or 5 inches long, um, or the other two. My, that's why my mom thought they were different animals, because they were so drastically different. But Scott said that they could just be in a different, you know, maybe there was a young walrus. And so he thinks that they were both, he thinks that they were Usyks, in fact. So I wish I could talk to my grandma and ask her what the store told her they were when she bought them. And I assume she bought them from a legitimate store, not from some black market place. She probably bought it in the 50s or 60s before it was illegal to import them from Alaska. Because I remember hearing that interview when, when we did that interview with Scott just the other day. I said, oh, my gosh, does my mom have contraband? <laughs> so now it was long enough ago that it was totally legitimate. Yeah, so I, I, I'm sure she got it legally, um, even though I, my aunt, um, my mom's older sister, did live in Alaska, and that was during the 70s, and she said she would have just been visiting her in Anchorage where they lived and probably wasn't, you know, buying uh, cultural artifacts. Well, thank you, Matt, for this information that you conveyed to us. Thanks. Well, well thank you for interviewing Scott, because I finally have some information on this bizarre collection that's in the family. After a break, Scott Nitzel and I will be back to continue our conversation about his book, The Usyk. You're listening to Nancy's Bookshelf on North State Public Radio. I'm Nancy Wigman. I'm Nancy Wigman, and you're listening to Nancy's Bookshelf on North State Public Radio. I'm back with my guest, Scott Nitzel, who has written a book about the Usyk. So how did you, what was your concept of a book about the Usyk? A concept about the book. Um, well, I wanted to tie in um, why this bone was important in relationship to bone fragments that are important to other religions. Um, and I certainly needed to um, include travel. And um, so it, it is a fast-paced book. Um, there is a group of five uh, high school students that are, are now grown up that do end up traveling together throughout Asia and discover a lot of 
bone fragments on their travels, and one of their brothers is the one that will discover the Usyk in Venezuela and will bring the Usyk home after its long travelogue of being stolen from the Inuits in the 18, late 1880s um, by a commercial fisherman. And it's left, it leaves Alaska. It ends up in South Dakota. And it's in the possession of a gentleman who's working on carving out Mount Rushmore in 1934. In fact, this gentleman is specifically um, jackhammering out the back of Abraham Lincoln's head and I didn't know at the time, but there's a huge tunnel and cave in the back of Lincoln's head that the United States was to use as storing important documents. And so the Usyk is there. The Usyk is stolen by a gentleman named Sheb Grubb, and he takes the Usyk to, Sioux, to his hometown, Sioux Falls, South Dakota, and he's uh, destitute for money. He sells it to the owner of Opal Seed and Grain, a little mercantile store, downtown Sioux Falls. And um, I'd like to pick up some reading when you, uh, yes, from that I, point. Yes, I think listeners would like to hear an example of what you've written. So it's actually, it's, it's, in, it's in the cave that's being carved out in the back of Lincoln's head. And during an all, a Sunday all-employee baseball game at the base of Mount Rushmore, it's stolen by this Sheb Grub and taken to Sioux Falls, and it's again, like I said, sold at Opal Seed and Grain, where it hangs inside of the store on two nails on the wall. And it's taken down once, and it's used as a centerpiece prop in a local high school play. So now that segues good into my reading here on page 24. I'll read just a page or two, yeah. Nancy. Okay. Sheb could not have known during those moments that a small group of criminals three miles east of town had dumped a freshly dead body alongside of four to 5,000 pounds of dynamite and over 1,000 kegs of blasting powder and had just ignited a fuse long enough to burn while they ran away in what would later be called the powder house explosion. The crater from that blast would measure 50 feet wide and 25 feet deep and it was felt over 100 miles away and registered on seismographs in California. However, more relevant to the shocked and determined Sheb was the fact that every storefront window near him had miraculously shattered from that explosion, leaving his prize only a few hundred steps within reach. Now I'm going to introduce a couple of new characters here that John and June were driving the flat plains a few miles east of Sioux Falls when they first saw the fiery ball in the sky and felt the loud concussion against their car. They stopped roadside and stepped outside to rein in their fears. Were we shot at? And is that where we're going tonight? Must have been their initial concerns. Sheb was seen running out of opals with the Usyk in his hand and attempting a getaway over glass and brick by Dannon, the only cop left not yet en route to the explosion. Sheb was apprehended and placed in the back seat of the patrol car, patrol car. His creative thoughts were destroyed, which cleared way for new creations. Sheb was locked into the cell, and the Usyk quickly logged in as evidence before Dannon left to join the investigation at the explosion. Inside room 301, at the Cataract Hotel were June and John. June was occupied with affixing a blanket to cover the broken window, and, ja and John sat on his bed trying to meditate away his fears from a most brazen act from just moments earlier when he entered the abandoned police station and inquired about the blast he saw the Usyk sitting on the desk. He had sensed he was alone and an all too familiar impulse rushed through him to immediately take whatever he saw and do it quickly. He had a history of stealing, which started with bubblegum as a kid as a moment of exhilarated, compulsive thrills. John saw the Usyk for a dollar, dollar value and a means to get something for it. He heard a whimpering from the back cell. It was Sheb pleading, let me out of here. John made eye contact and exited with the Usyk. 
John pushed the Usyk deep into a sidewalk snowbank alongside of the police station, a snowbank only 10 feet from the desktop it was sitting on only 30 seconds prior. The Usyk would have to hide overnight in the snow, which would give him enough time to strategize. He had swiped something that belonged to somebody else, and he regretted it and feared any of the consequences. If he had been seen, otherwise, maybe it was a good move, he concluded. He found a calming frame of mind in preparation that if someone knocked at the door during the night, he could appear tranquil and innocent. In the morning, and only after he was sure that they were leaving town, did he return to the Usyk. He met up with June waiting at their car and gleefully told her, look what I just found. By lunchtime, the Usyk had passed over Lewis and Clark Trail and was heading west towards the Rocky Mountains. So then in here I have a, a clipping from, um, from the daily newspaper about evidence stole from the police station. Now this looks like the reproduction of an actual clipping. Yes. Is that the case, Scott? Yeah, yeah that's it. <laughs> mm. So the dateline is, uh, they say, inside the police station in Sioux Falls. So um, you actually found this clipping to include in your story. Clipping. Yes, I did. So I do want to zip back here and show and share with your listeners um, about the three carvings on this specific Usyk, if yes. you don't mind. Okay. So before the Christians and Pre or Presbyterians arrived in Alaska, and while it was still in the possession of various Inuit tribes, there were three separate carvings um, on, on here. And you can see a picture of this on page 11. The first one a close-up, I might add, a close-up of this uh, yes. carving. Yeah. So the first one that was made was this elliptical-shaped brown owl right here, which is a, a, a sacred thing to Inuits. And the second one that was made is this um, a carving of this female face with antlers, which the Inuits called Pukimna, which is the caribou goddess mother. And, and I'm, I'm curious as to how you would even know that's a female carving because <laughs> it has I antlers. was told it was. I see. <laughs> <laughs> um, and the third of the carvings are to represent their 13 months in their lunar calendar. There's 13 equal and parallel notches carved into one side of the music. And you can kind of see them on the book cover of the book. Okay. So... Um, I feel that the people that, that have bought the book, that enjoy the book, that have told me about, you know, contacted me and said they liked it, they're, they're generally, they like adventure, they're curious about travel and other cultures. Um, and again, the book has fun inserts about Buddhist relics and Hindu bone relics and specifically drinking from skull cups. And there's uh, a heavy fun dulse of this Usyk. It's time spent with the Navajo Nation around the time that some of them were code talkers. So I, I can say that uh, I went on the websites, both Barnes & Noble and Amazon this morning, and it still has perfect five stars. <laughs> and most of the... Um, the book, that is. The, yes, the book. Uh, the comments are about adventure. So in some positive manner. Might remind listeners that my guest is Scott Nitzel, and he's telling us about a book he wrote, The Usyk. Now, uh, when I travel around and come across these legends of these relics, I, some of them are just so far-fetched. I think, oh, yeah, this is just totally made up. And your story is so creative that, um, and you have the photographs, so we know this it's true, but these characters seem so alive. How could you have um, – you, did you create these characters for the I, story? Well, certainly I've created these characters for this um, uh, historical fiction piece. Yes, absolutely. But we can uh, – like I mentioned, you reproduce an article from a newspaper, and you have the actual photographs of the Usyk that you're writing about. So do you think you're going to uh, follow up? Uh, with another book about the Usyk? Well, I, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> it was, um, I, I became quite introverted during the uh, three months of writing. 
um, after I you, had all my an fasting. introvert? I did it. I, 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 I stayed home. I, I didn't enjoy, enjoy it very much. It's hard. It's laborious. Um, and I've always fancied myself as some kind of writer. I, I ran around Hollywood with some screenplays. I was a copywriter in an ad agency uh, back in the early days. But it's, it's laborious for me. Um, so I don't know about a follow-up. But you never know. I mean, it's just like things just, this life changes so dramatic. I never thought I'd write this. But then I needed to come out of the the pandemic having done something really positive and so this was this was my breakthrough this is like okay okay something good came out of this well writing does require a lot of discipline I think sometimes non-writers don't realize how much discipline is required to write a book so um you you like to travel. Do you have uh, maybe a destination in mind for your next adventure? Well, it's um, I was in Africa this summer. I did Oman and a Tanzania, Kenya, and a Cape Town, South Africa. So often I've I don't just go to a country or so. I often get the map out and I'll I'll go around the world. And I'll, I'll go to five or six or seven countries in one trip. And I'll research and pick the best of, of each spot and concentrate on that for three or four days, and then I'll move on. Um, so I met a wonderful gal 10 months ago here in Chico. She's a nurse practitioner. Um, she's a great, just a great person to be with, Stacy. And we she went to Africa with me, and we're thinking about going to... A couple of Caribbean or Caribbean South Pacific islands, and also New Zealand and Australia, as soon as we can, as soon as she'll get the time off. Well, it's been a pleasure talking to you, Scott, and learning about this little-known fact that uh, is known in Alaska, but not so much here. And I want to thank Matt for uh, joining our conversation about a family member who has a collection of this. A little known object. Thank you, Nancy. It's been a pleasure. Me. It's a pleasure, too. I'll remind uh, listeners the yes, the author is Scott Nitzel, and the book is The Usyk. I would also like to thank my first guest, Pam Warfield, who lives in Derryville, California, and has written a book about cast iron cooking. You've been listening to Nancy's Bookshelf production of North State Public Radio. You can find this and other episodes of Nancy's Bookshelf on our website, mynspr.org.